Welcome to The Gathering Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Varberg, and this podcast is all about us learning how to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. We do this through stories, teachings, and testimonies about God's unyielding faithfulness. Today, I have the honor of interviewing my father, Paul Varberg, and hearing about his story growing up in the Philippines as a missionary kid and eventually going back as a missionary himself. I've mentioned a lot about my childhood on different episodes and what it was like to be raised as a missionary kid, and I'm excited to have learned new things about my father and my family and my mother um, that I hadn't known before in this interview. I hope it, it leaves you encouraged, it gives you insight as to what it's like to be a missionary. I feel like people can often glamorize this idea of giving your life away and moving overseas, and I think... Paul gives such a good illustration of how God has worked in his heart and called him to serve Jesus with his life. And one of my favorite parts is how he encourages us at the end, whatever place in life you find yourself, how you can better serve God right here, right now, with who you have influence over and impact on in your circle or your sphere of influence. So join me in the studio as we talk through Paul Varberg's story, a little bit about how he grew up, his personal faith with the Lord, his decision to go back out as a missionary, and a lot of the projects that he's working on now, and how you can be involved in uh, serving people in the Philippines. Join me in the studio. Well, Dad, it's great to have you on the podcast. Good to be here. Yeah, it's... uh, um, it's been interesting because I know when I recorded Frederick Clarier, um, it was sweet to hear his family share how much they appreciated to have some of his stories recorded. And especially with um, grandpa passing recently and all of that, I was like, you know what? It'd be really fun to get some of dad's stories recorded, you know, because there's different seasons of life and uh, um, it'd be fun to kind of talk through a bit of your um, childhood and what made you decide to get into missions and some of your uh, um, projects you're working on now because you're kind of in the season and trying to wrap things up and get people in leadership places and try to um, make sure everything's sustaining um, in these next six, seven or so years before so it can keep going long after you're gone. But I'd love for you just to, if you met someone at our church and they asked who a little bit about yourself. What would you say? What would be a simple introduction about you and your family? Well, my wife and I have been missionaries for 35 years in the Philippines, working amongst a language group of 3 million people that uh, were considered unreached when we first arrived in 1988 because the percentage of evangelicals was only one half of one percent. Now it's between two and three percent, but because there's such a big people group, there's still a lot of people that need to hear the gospel. So we're working on that in a whole variety of ways. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, um, a lot of people will hear that I'm from the Philippines, so obviously they know that um, you guys are missionaries, but it's less common for people to find out that you and mom are both missionary kids. I'd be curious to hear 
what it was like for you, um, the most common question I get asked is, what was it like growing up in the Philippines? And obviously I've, I've, I've heard a lot from you and I've seen a lot from grandpa, but I was curious, what were some of the highlights you had or um, maybe some of the challenges of being raised in the Philippines? I know the way I grew up and the way that you raised us, very different kind of city and environment than where you grew up. But uh, what was your experience like? Well, my first four years in the Philippines, we lived in a small town with no electricity that was uh, on the coast. However, the first house we lived in was in the middle of town and was very hot. So my dad kept looking for a house along the beach Mm. that didn't have a tin roof. He wanted a house with a thatch roof so that it would be cooler because we didn't have electricity. So you didn't have fans and things like that. And we did find one. And so of the four years we lived there, three of the years, we lived on a beach. And uh, it was, uh, my dad had an outrigger boat. And so I remember going with him and he went fishing a couple times. I went with him once when he happened to hook a tuna fish. Mm. And he wasn't using a fishing pole. He was using a fishing line, and it was wrapped around his finger. Oh. And so when that tuna <laughs> grabbed hold, he almost lost his finger. But uh, we had tuna for supper. Yeah. Isn't that where you guys would go out and, and the tides catch crabs and things like that? Not at that time when I was that young. But later, when we moved to Masbati, after... My f- the first four years we were in the Philippines. So my preschool years is what I was describing. Yeah. And then <clears throat> when I was in kindergarten, we were here in the States. And then for first grade, we went back to the Philippines, this time in a different language area, a different island, an island that was a ranching island. Mm. And we lived initially for the first Three years there, we lived in a house right across the street from the large high school in town. And so there were kids uh, walking to and from school every day. And so I liked playing in the backyard rather than the front yard (laughs) because of my blonde hair. Everybody stopped to watch whatever I was doing if I was in the front yard. But in the backyard, they couldn't see me. Yeah, I, I I understand that feeling. <laughs> when I was a preschooler and we were living on the island of Cebu, his ministry was a lot of one-on-one evangelism, and uh, he liked to use a motorcycle. Um, he had a, a a vehicle. It was a Willie's Jeep station wagon. It was the only one in the whole town. Wow. Which meant that he also doubled as the ambulance driver because if anyone was in an accident or in a traumatic situation, there was no one else in the whole town that had a vehicle. So everybody came running to dad to drive them to the hospital. And sometimes accidents happen in the middle of the night or at bad times. And so he often had to be ready on a moment's notice to drive two hours over rough roads to get to the nearest hospital. 
Wow. But when we moved to Masbate. the island of Masbati, which is the ranching island, he continued to do one-on-one -on -one evangelism, played tennis. The tennis court wasn't too far away and tried to reach out to those playing tennis. But he also began a radio program. And uh, because at that time, this island also did not have electricity except for two to three hours at night. Mm. But during the day, there was no electricity, so there were no TV stations. And uh, having a radio program meant that, um, I mean, that was the only thing that people listened to. Yeah. There were no cell phones, no gadgets, no TVs in that place at that time. It was a province about 600,000, populating three islands and a lot of small islands. But he rented time on the two, there were only two radio stations in the province. And he bought the same time on both stations, 6.30 in the morning and 6.30 in the evening. And he was on the air. His program is called The Voice of Truth. And it wasn't just him all the time. He often brought other pastors to speak and share Bible lessons as well. And he also had a time of answering questions that people would write in. They couldn't call in, but they could write letters. And then he would answer their questions over the radio. It was able to reach a lot of people because for those two half-hour periods, which were key times when people were listening to the radio, they had no one else they could listen to. Mm. If they didn't like him on one station, he said, you're perfectly free to turn to the other station. You can listen to me there as well. But that were, those were the only two stations they had the option of listening to. And, and the voice of truth was on both of them at the same time for a half hour in the morning and half hour in the evening. Did he do a lot of uh, just reading scripture and teaching? What were the types of things? Do you know what he, he tended to cover? Well, he was different times of the year, and he did this for 20 years. So he did go through book studies. He did do topical studies. But like I said, he also answered questions that people had written in over the radio if he felt it was a good question worth answering. He also did have other people speak too. It would be a little too heavy for him to do it all the time. Yeah. So he had other pastors who were on the air on a regular basis. And this wasn't done in English. Mm. This was done in Maspatinho. Got it. So that went on for 20 years. Wow. Yeah, it had to stop because after 20 years, electricity had come, TV stations had come, and the popularity of listening to radio had decreased significantly, uh. <laughs> especially at those times, because that's when people would look on the programs on the TV. On TV, yeah. Got it. So um, a lot of your childhood was there. You... You were homeschooled, right? Or did you go to some of the local schools? I know there was like a My mix of My mother homeschooled me for first, second, and third okay. grade. But then for fourth grade, homeschool was in the morning. But then I went in the afternoon to fourth grade at a public school. And I enjoyed it a lot. 
And so after that, um, I just started going to public schools. Got it. My dad and I both went to the same high school in Manila um, and stayed in the dorms. So we had to fly to school. <laughs> yeah. But when did you start at Faith, Dad? Well, I went for my ninth grade year. Okay. So I finished sixth, seventh, and eighth grade at the Philippine public schools. And um, for ninth grade, I went to Faith Academy, stayed in a boys' dorm, which was made up of ninth, tenth, eleventh graders, and there were 20 of us in the dorm. The dorm parent was a wrestler, so uh, I began to become interested in wrestling. Ah, whether I wanted to or not. <laughs> you had uh, 19 other brothers to wrestle with. <laughs> yep. When do you feel like your faith became real to you? Obviously, growing up with parents that were missionaries, you were introduced to the story of Jesus really young. When do you think it became something? Obviously, there's the moment that you understand the need for salvation, but I'm sure going to faith or being away from family, there was a, a sense of making your faith your own. What was that journey for you? Well, we had family devotions from a very early age where my dad would read from a Bible storybook after every breakfast, and, uh, and that continued through, through high school. Whenever we were at home, there was family devotions after every breakfast. But when we went back to the States, and uh, I was only five years old, um, my parents were the missionary speakers at a summer camp mm. up in New, Jer uh, New Jersey or Connecticut. I think it was in Connecticut. And uh, while we were there, we had a cabin that we lived in. And mom and dad were in and out doing different things with the camp ground. Dad was the main speaker for missions topics. They had a mission time every day. But I remember my parents, um, dad came to the cabin and he asked mom to pray with him because he was going to go share the gospel with a certain person. Hmm. And he asked mom to please pray that this person would um, trust in Jesus. And so when dad left, as a five-year-old, I asked my mom, what did dad mean that he wanted this person to trust and receive Jesus. And so my mom took time and opened the Bible and read verses to me and explained to me about the sin that each of us commit and our penalty for that, and that Jesus died for us on the cross, and that he was offering to save those who would put their trust not in themselves, but in what he would do for them. And so my mother said, if I was interested, we could kneel by the bed and pray. And so I knelt with mom at that time and did pray and asked Jesus to be my savior. Now, 
Did I understand everything at a, as a five-year-old? No, I didn't understand everything. But if ever I was asked after that whether I was going to go to heaven when I died, I always could answer that Jesus died for me, and I'm trusting him to be my Savior, and he will save me. So that <clears throat> basic childlike faith began young. Now, when I was um, growing up, my parents, like I said, we had family devotions every breakfast. And then when I went to Faith Academy, I uh, joined a Bible study led by a fifth grade teacher, even though I was a ninth grader. This fifth grade teacher had, a Bible, there were different Bible studies that teachers led and I happened to join this one and found that it was very helpful for me growing spiritually. Yeah, was there a, a part of that or a realization in that that you realized, oh, this is a, another level of my faith or a, a new depth to my relationship with the Lord? Well, um, what it did cause me to realize is that just going to church doesn't often produce as much growth, or even listening to a Bible class doesn't produce as much growth as what you receive when together with peers you discuss spiritual topics and you each think about the verses and search your heart to, to find what are you trusting and relying on and and related to other topics as well. So I saw the value of having a peer group Bible study mm. that you're a part of. I see. So instead of just the church and how we normally see it of a building and we go on Sundays and there's a pastor that speaks kind of like the Acts church where there were gatherings and homes and being a part of a Bible study and discussing with peers that you saw that, wow, this is, this is where more of the growth happens. Yeah. That was yeah. my feeling. Yeah. And I know you went back to the States for college. Um, I don't remember if you went back the same time your parents did and they helped you move in and all that, or if you had to figure that out all on your own. Oh, no. Um, I flew um, to Manila and hopped on an international flight, and uh, I flew to Hong Kong, if I remember right. And after Hong Kong, flew back. I went to Wyoming, where I got a, had a, I'd arranged by letter wow. to have a <laughs> summer <letter>. job <laughs> on a, <clears throat> building green bins in Albin, Wyoming, which is just a little east of Cheyenne. And uh, so I went there and uh, built grain bins for a summer. And then from there went up to um, Bethel College. and uh, In Minnesota. In Minnesota, went into the dorm my freshman year and uh, began studying. Now, I had enjoyed my father's working as a uh, in radio and saw the value of that and saw that it had been surpassed by TV and when I was at Faith Academy I took a photography class 
that uh, really sparked my interest in doing photography. And so when I started college, my major was is radio television production or mass communication. Mass communication. Yeah. So that was kind of that interest peaked with your dad and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and the photography part from Faith Academy. That's cool. What was college like for you coming from the Philippines? I know for me, I, I felt like I got a lot of exposure to American culture um, growing up. I don't know if you felt like it was uh, a big culture shock coming to college or if you felt like those trips that you guys would make for home assignment and Faith Academy were, were good enough to kind of prep you for transitioning into college. What was that like? Well, in many ways, I felt I was way ahead of the other students in that most of them were leaving home for the first time, and college was their first time to be in a dorm away from mom and dad. Mm. And I had been in a dorm away from mom and dad for three years already, and so I considered myself an expert at this. Mm. And uh, so um, I had already had a summer job. I worked in the food service at Bethel College, so I had a job, and uh, my roommate had a Volkswagen Bug, but he didn't have as good grades, so I offered that uh, we register in my name, and uh, we can get uh, a straight-A um, discount, discount. <laughs> and so uh, it was registered in my name, even though it wasn't mine, so my first car on record was... <laughs> A Volkswagen Bug, 1964, <laughs> and this was in 1976. Wow. <laughs> I guess uh, um, coming from a missionary background, when you went to college, you decided to study TV and radio production. Was there already um, kind of a desire in your heart of, man, I, I think I want to go and do what my parents did and go overseas? Did you just kind of come into school and college with an open mind to see what God had for you? What was your, where was your mind at coming into college? And I don't know if it was changed drastically throughout college or if there was a specific experience, but I'm kind of curious. Um, I know there's a time that you talk about when you clearly knew you wanted to go into overseas missions, but I don't know when that started. Well, when I started college, I was committed to Christ, and uh, there was a campus crusade organization on college so at Bethel, so I joined that, and because of my um, interest in being in a small group, I joined the campus crusade small group. Of course, the goal of crusade small groups is that after you've been in it a while, then you're going to share the gospel, and you're going to lead one. So I became an action group leader and led a small group, which incidentally was made up of all guys from Bethel. And uh, one of the guys happened to work as a night watchman at a funeral parlor. And so he said, let's just meet here. I can't leave because I'm the night watchman, but there's always at least one or two rooms empty. The other rooms have people meeting and visiting the 
the uh, the dead person. So I led action groups with a uh, dead body in a coffin on the other side of the room, but we had good discussions. That's fun. But I was not. I did not enter college and planning to be a missionary. I planned to, you know, serve the Lord in my career, but I was thinking of a production career, communication career. But it was after being an action group leader and then going, attending the Urbana Mission Conference in Urbana, Illinois, that uh, I was challenged by Billy Graham and David Howard and some of the other speakers who were there to uh, consider world world missions. Mm. And so that came more towards my junior year and senior year. I know after you graduated, you did that trip around the world, right? That was between college and seminary. No, that was between my junior year and my senior year. Oh, it was year. between your junior and... Okay, yeah. I so had, that was right after you'd been to that experience, huh? Yeah. I had uh, been a salesman selling books door to door. I sold Christian books, Bible story books, and books for having family devotions, and uh, did very well during the summers. And I had a friend who was a missionary kid who went to Wheaton, Illinois, who I'd recruited to sell with me. And we decided that uh, we would travel around the world. And so uh, both of us would go. Eventually, we'd stop in the Philippines and visit him. And I had read up some books about how to travel. And I read this book about vagabonding oh. through... Europe. And what was meant by vagabonding was that you buy a vehicle that you can camp in or sleep in, a van of some sort you can cook in, and you just go from place to place around around Europe. And so this friend of mine named Ray and I, we flew from Chicago to London, and then we went to the a parking lot near the Waterloo Bridge. And uh, there were about 30 to 40 different vans there in that parking lot, people living in the vans, trying to sell them so they could fly back home to wherever they were from. The majority of them were people from Canada or New Zealand and Australia, a few Americans, but not so many. And uh, so we found a Volkswagen van that was already converted so that the back had beds and had a sink, a stove, and uh, we bought it for $625, wow. and we drove it around to England. We took it on the hovercraft over to France and drove from France up to Brussels, Belgium, and up to Amsterdam, and then across to into Germany, and then up to Denmark, and took it on ferry over to Sweden and went around Sweden, went to Varberg, Sweden, Yeah, visited the Varberg city and the castle of Varberg, the museum of Varberg. And then from there, we went up to Oslo, Norway, camped in the parking lot of a Lutheran church 
and uh, wouldn't you know, it snowed, and boy, was it cold. We decided we're not going to spend much time in Norway. Let's go south. So we went on down south, and on the way through Germany, we went into East Germany to get to Berlin because Berlin was <clears throat> half of Berlin was part of West Germany, but Berlin was in the middle of East Germany. Mm. And uh, then we traveled on down in the Bavarian Alps and went to Neuschwanstein, the castle that Walt Disney copied for Disneyland. And then we went into Austria and Switzerland. I stopped in Labrie and spent some time with Francis Schaeffer, who was a philosopher and Christian writer who had a retreat center where people could come in the Alps and stay and we stayed there for just a few days because of the cold. <laughs> and then we went south into Italy and went to Rome and attended Mass performed by the Pope wow. went through the Vatican Museum. And then we took a ferry boat across to Greece, went around Greece and saw the different sites. And then we went up into Yugoslavia and Bulgaria, so two communist countries, and then went to Turkey and Syria and Jordan. Then we went across and spent a month in Israel, wow. and then went back to Jordan and went down into Saudi Arabia. But we couldn't keep traveling, even though we had planned to keep traveling through <clears throat> Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan into Pakistan and India. But at that time... This was 1979, and that was when the Iranian took the American hostages from mm -hmm. the embassy in Tehran. And uh, when it was just the embassy in Tehran, and that's in the north of Iran, we were still going to drive across southern Iran. Our Volkswagen had Dutch plates, and the, my guy I was traveling with could speak German, and we'd pass for European, so we, we <laughs> thought we could sneak through. But then Iraq and Iran started a war. So we had to sell our Volkswagen van in um, Saudi Arabia. And we sold it for 650 so we made some money after driving <laughs> it through all of those countries. went back and finished college um at that point were you already decided to go to seminary and and that was the next step or what was the process there well at that point um i wanted to try seminary but i felt that if i was going to go to seminary i didn't feel that god would want me to just be a pastor in america he'd want me because of my background in languages and so forth, to go somewhere in the world as a missionary. And since I had traveled to many countries, I knew that uh, there were great needs in many parts of the world. But um, I decided after graduating from Bethel to go to a seminary that had more missions focus. At that time, Bethel Seminary 
only had one professor of missions. So any class you taught or studied on missions, he, that was your only professor. Mm. There was Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and they had five mission professors at that time. So I went and visited that school, talked to some friends that were there. But then I researched Fuller Theological Seminary, which had 13 full-time mm. missions profs. So you could get a missions degree and focus on uh, winning Muslims. You could focus on winning uh, Buddhists or focus on winning Hindus or doing translation. There were a lot more things related to missions that you could study about. You could study more about doing leadership training, not just church planting, but other aspects of missions. Wow. And so because of the fact that uh, I was getting tired of the cold winters in Minnesota, Pasadena, California sound very appealing to me. That's awesome. And that brought you out, um, and obviously during that season's where you eventually met mom, right? Well, not during my first year of seminary, I didn't. But after one year of seminary, I felt like I had done Bible study leading part-time. I had preached once or twice, but I had never been in a ministry where I had to preach or teach every week. Mm. And so I thought I needed to test if I could handle that kind of stress and pressure. And so I looked into different churches that I could in, do a nine-month internship in. And there were several good churches that I looked into in Southern California, but almost all of them, the church staff that would be my supervisor was someone who had just graduated from seminary a few years ago. Ah. And so I didn't really think, wow, I'm not going to learn that much from him. He's only been in ministry two or three or four years. But Trinity Baptist of Santa Barbara at that time was a church of about 1,500. And uh, the pastor was a guy named Jim Nelson, who was the brother of a missionary in the Philippines named Link Nelson that I knew and his um, kids. And the pastor there that would be my supervisor, the youth pastor, was in his 40s, and he had been in youth ministry for a number of years. And he also used evangelism explosion as the method for explaining salvation. And my father had discovered early on in the Philippines, when you're trying to explain salvation to a person that has Roman Catholic background, many of the ways of explaining the gospel, whether it's the four spiritual laws or steps to peace with God that Billy Graham uses, any Roman Catholic could agree with all those points and nothing would have changed. He wouldn't understand what he lacked as far as salvation. But the um, evangelism explosion used two diagnostic questions, and then it talked about having three different kinds of faith that really brought out for a person who maybe always was going to church and believed in the main principles of Christianity but was still trusting in their works in order to get to heaven. It made it very clear 
that there needed to be a change of faith and not trusting yourself, but trusting in Jesus. And so I went to intern for nine months at Trinity Baptist in Santa Barbara. And uh, there was a Westmont graduate who had grown up in Africa and then gone to Westmont and finished her degree and went back to Africa as a missionary, single missionary for two years. And she had come back and was working at Westmont in the admissions office, who happened to be in that, uh, at going to Trinity Baptist. And my assignment as the intern was to be a teacher trainer along with my supervisor in Evangelism Explosion. And one of my trainees was this lady named Marjorie Riddle. And I was also the pastor to the singles group, which had a singles Bible study during the week. And one of the singles that attended was this young lady named Marjorie Riddle. And that was the person I eventually developed a nice relationship with. Yeah, that's fun, Dad. Um, so when you guys met, um, I know from my understanding that you both had a call to go overseas for missions. Um, if I remember right, you did do some researching as to where. I know you did the whole um, kind of survey of the Philippines, but what were kind of the steps you guys went through after getting married to kind of decide, hey, we're going to go overseas and decide where you were going to go? Well, um, when we did get married, um, we decided to take a honeymoon and spend it in Hawaii and come back to California. But then we would continue our honeymoon um, later the next, after the next summer. I went <clears throat> back to, uh, um, to Fuller just to take a few courses and uh, just the spring quarter because we had already used up the fall getting married and going on our honeymoon. But my dad and mom were, had started a Bible school in the Philippines and they needed to come on home assignment and they didn't want the Bible school to close. And so they told us what classes needed to be taught. So Margie and I took those classes at Fuller so that when we went back, we could then uh, teach those courses the next year. So we traveled, but we didn't go direct just to the Philippines. We went up to Korea and spent 10 or 11 days in Korea. We went to Hong Kong. Then we went to the Philippines. And we taught that school year in the Philippines. But then after that, we traveled to um, Pakistan to look at the possibility of doing ministry in a Muslim country. And uh, just 11 days in Pakistan was enough to convince Margie that she was not cut out for... Muslim ministry as we walked around Karachi and went into many businesses and malls and there were no women. The only people there were men. We A movie came out called Passage to India 
And uh, we went to this large theater in uh, Karachi. About 3,000 people sat in the theater, and Margie counted five other women were the only women in that theater. All the rest of the women were in their homes. And so uh, she didn't feel that would be the type of ministry she would enjoy. But then we flew down to Kenya and got some exposure there to um, the wildlife as well as seeing Rift Valley Academy and uh, seeing some of the ministries there in uh, Nairobi as well as out in uh, Norok and places near the Maasai Mara. And then we went to Zaire and uh, went and visited the many places where Margie and her parents had had ministry. And uh, after that, we went back to the United States. But it was basically Margie who had the strongest inclination to want to do ministry in the Philippines Mm. because she had seen her mother doing ministry and all the other missionary wives doing ministry in the Congo where she grew up in Zaire. And uh, she found that the missionary wives, the only close friends they had were other missionary wives that lived on these mission stations. There was such a cultural um, gap or difference between the African ladies and the missionary ladies that they could know each other, they could talk to each other, and they could be casual friends, but they were never intimate friends. Whereas during that nine months that we taught in the Bible school in Maspati, there were several occasions, Maspati is a small town on a ranching island, and it had no malls. There were several times when two or three ladies from the church would say to Margie, let's go to Ligaspi, let's go to the mall. Mm. And so these two, these ladies would take Margie with them, and they'd go on the ferry boat and take the bus and get to the city and stay together in a motel or hotel and do their shopping for two or three days and come back. And uh, Margie f- saw that there was she could be a very close intimate friend with wow. a philippine lady because of uh the fact that they there of course are different levels of um society but these were ladies that were more of the middle upper class that uh would feel comfortable with margie and and could converse with her well in english as well as in the local language. Wow. And so she wanted to be, she wanted to do ministry somewhere where she didn't feel isolated from the people, where mm. she wanted to feel... She could be involved in the ministry could, and help with... Well, not religion. just be involved. She could be involved in ministry wherever we went, but she didn't want to feel like she had no close friends. Mm. She wanted to feel like she could have a, be surrounded by close friends from the culture she was ministering to. Mm. So you guys settled on the Philippines and, uh, still had two years of seminary. Yet still to had two so years I had to go seminary. back and <clears throat> do two years of seminary. And then after those two years, but during those two years of seminary, we went ahead and 
got appointed as missionaries, and we went ahead and raised our support from churches within driving distance of Fuller Seminary. So once I graduated, we were basically ready to, ready go, to go to the mission field with our support already. And so we went on to the Philippines. But when we got to the Philippines, we were the first of six couples that were going to come. Some were with the Baptist General Conference, and some were with North um, Northern Baptist, and North and uh, because they were teaming with Baptist General Conference, there that's German Baptist, whereas the Baptist General Conference are Swedish Baptists, and they were working together. And there were six couples coming out, but because I spoke three Philippine languages fluently already, and I was the first of the six couples, Margie and I were the first, they asked us to survey 14 provinces because they wanted these new missionaries to go into new areas, not just the same areas where mm. churches were already established and Bible schools were already going. And so we spent four months traveling to these 14 provinces, going to all the major towns, counting how many churches there were, how uh, evangelical churches, that is, and what the attendance was every Sunday in these churches, and coming up with statistics on wow. the percentage of evangelicals in the provinces. And then you guys, that's how you decided on going to the Warai Warai people. Yeah, we went, you know, there were some provinces that we went to that had a percentage of evangelicals as high as 8%. Several in Mindanao and had, and Palawan had percentages in the 5%. The provinces of southern Bicol, which is the southern part of Luzon, the main province that Manila is on, the percentage was only about 2%. But the four provinces of the what I speaking part of the Philippines and Leyte and Samar, the percentage was one half of one percent wow. in nineteen eighty seven. So by February of eighty eight we were assigned as missionaries to go to to start ministries that would reach out towards the Warai speaking people. They were only two million in population at that time in eighty eight. Now there are three million. Mm. And obviously through your 35-year career, there's a lot of ministries that you've been a part of. I would want to spend a bit more time on um, Bethel and some of the things you're doing now, but can you uh, catch us up on some of the things you've done throughout your career in the Philippines? Well, I knew from my watching my father do ministry that if I'm going to reach the Warai people, the best place to start is not out in the podunks, but to start in the most influential place amongst the most influential people and move out from there. Because if you disciple people in the podunks, they can only win people in the podunks. Mm. But if you disciple people that are in the influential centers, 
they can influence people in all the other smaller towns and villages. So we went to Tukloban City, which was the most, the largest of the cities. There were, at that time, only two cities in the Warai-speaking area. Today there are four, but uh, there were 99 towns and there were 3,400 villages. And so we started a church in the city of Tukloban, and uh, one of the pastors that uh, of the church that supported us a guy named Buf Carricker from Northwest Church in Fresno, California. He said, Paul, you've got to join the Rotary Club. And he brought me to a couple Rotary Club meetings so that he, I could get used to it. And then he uh, told me to start when I first went to Tukloba and join the Rotary Club. So I did that and uh, began to get to know a lot of the Rotarians, most of them were um, owners of businesses or manager levels in government or banks or institutions. I also joined the golf club and the tennis club because all of those are places where you meet uh, upper class yeah. people and began to lead them to the Lord. I spent our first year, we weren't to start any Bible studies yet, so from February till December, I just focused on making friends and contacts and on learning the Warai language. But then by January, I started, I think I had three Bible studies, and then by Feb March or June, I had five Bible studies every week, and then that continued to grow until I had upwards of 10 Bible studies a week going on for the next two and a half years. So different times a day. <laughs> different days. Different days. <laughs> and different times, yes. Yeah. But uh, the um, it was then in May of 1992 that we had our first Sunday service. Mm. But there were already... 70 people that I had led to the Lord, and I had been having a, these different Bible studies that were evangelistic, but then I also had a Thursday night discipleship class. And on Thursday night, we covered more uh, discipleship type of classes. People learned to start tithing, and people began getting baptized um, as a result of that, even before we started Sunday services. Mm. Wow. So then that was when Tacloban Bible Community started. TBC. Yes, but that was also since we had come out in 88, and this was, or we had come out in 87, actually, and this was now 92. We were due to come back to the States for home assignment. So I had to recruit someone to, uh, to take over the ministry while I was on home assignment. So I recruited... When I was at Fuller, I was the leader of the Missions Concerns Committee, which was a committee that organized activities on Fuller's campus for those who were serious about going into missions. And uh, the guy who was vice president while well, I was president, then he became president after I left, was a guy named Steve Houston, who had grown up in the Philippines and uh, was younger than I, but I'd known him 
at Faith Academy, and he felt called to missions, and so I recruited him to come out to the Philippines and to come and uh, take over the ministry. So mm. they arrived, I think, just uh, two months before we started Sunday service. That was the start of the church. Uh, from there, um, I also, there were five churches already in the Wadi-speaking area that were connected with the Baptist Conference of the Philippines, so I helped do training for them, and uh, the number of churches has now grown to between 20 and 30 churches, and uh, I also, when we came back that second time, once we had the church already started, and then we were going to buy property. In 1994, I bought a property right in the university belt of the city of Tukloban for the church. And so then we started a student center and a campus ministry. Mm. And so um, that became the this next focus because there are... 3,400 villages, there are 97 towns and uh, then four cities now amongst the Wadai people. So if you take all of those places, if I were to rely on my witnessing and go and spend one day in each of those places, it would take nine and a half years to go to every place. Wow. So in my career, I could only visit every place Three days or four days. Wow. So, um, but God showed us that those that the students from these towns and villages that go to high school and finish high school and want to go to college, there are some small colleges out in the other towns, but those that want to go to the bigger universities will come to Tukloban City. And so if we can win them to the Lord while they're in college, teach them how to do evangelism, teach them how to lead a small group while they're in college, when they go back to their town or village, they already have the gifts and abilities to start a church or at least help a church get started. Wow. So that was a, a, a great way to multiply your efforts. Mm -hmm. And then I know you decided to uh, start a school and uh, now it's K through 12 and now you're trying to build extra classes or two classes per grade level. But what was the, the inception of that idea? Well, it wasn't my idea. In fact, it took a while for me to be convinced of it. But one of the Chinese businessmen I had led to the Lord named Andy Lee had a son named Luke that went to the same Catholic Chinese school, Sacred Heart, that Andy had gone to. And so Luke went there for kinder, for first grade, second grade. By third grade, when Luke was in third grade, Andy was shaking his head and he was coming to me and saying, we need to start a better school mm. because Luke is learning from almost the same textbooks. He's learning in exact, almost the same way as I did when he was talking about himself when he was in college some 20 years earlier. And uh, he said, 
it's a Christian school and that it's a Catholic school, but they don't even bring Bibles. None of the mm-hmm. kids own a Bible, and all they're told is you have to attend Mass. And they, the only Christian part is you have to, your attendance in Mass is taken. And so I told Andy, well, that's a good idea. You ought to start it. I'll help you start it. <laughs> but I came to plant churches to win souls and to train pastors. And he said, no. You lead it, and I'll help you. And this went back and forth for a while, but I eventually saw that there was value in what he was uh, encouraging us to do. That was around 1997, 98, 99, when he was trying to convince me to start the school. So I had been there already 10 years by that time. I had discovered that uh, Jesus was right when he said it's hard to get a rich man into heaven. It's as hard as getting a camel through the eye of a needle because I had been trying to win wealthy people to the Lord and I, God had granted success, but it's not. It's definitely not easy because those people who are already successful have money, they have power, they have position, and most often they have vices that are a stumbling block for them listening to the gospel and making a commitment to Christ. But their children are not leaders yet, are not, uh, don't have vices yet. And if we started a school and made it clearly the best school in that part of the Philippines. We couldn't be the best in the world. We couldn't be the best in Manila or Cebu. But if we could be the best school in the four provinces of the Waraiwari area, then all of the prominent and influential families would want their kids in our school. Mm. And so we started a school with that vision. We called it Bethel International School. I chose the name Bethel because I'd gone to Bethel College, and I figured I'd be raising support from within the Baptist General Conference, so having a school with the same name would be easier to raise support for. So I chose Bethel, and it means household of God. So it uh, it's fitting. It's fitting for a school to be the household of God. So we began making steps to become the best school. And uh, one of the first steps we did is we had a large campus. So we have a campus now that is 13 acres. And uh, when we started our classes, we were the first school in all of these Four cities, 97 towns, and 3,400 villages. We were the only school that had air-conditioned classrooms. There were a couple um, schools that had air conditioning in the principal's office and in the computer room, but they didn't have air-conditioned classrooms. We were the first to have air-conditioned classrooms. We were also the first to have imported textbooks for subjects like English and uh, subjects like science. And we imported Singapore math books for Mm. math as well. And that 
made it stand out. We also, I recruited some American teachers to come and volunteer. So we were the only school in all of those areas that had one or two American or three American teachers that would teach, for the most part, English so that parents knew that their kids could learn to speak English without the Philippine accent. And that made a big difference. Now, the other schools in that whole area had blackboards. We put in whiteboards. Mm. But now we don't even hardly use the whiteboards anymore because we have large screen TV in every classroom and the teachers teach With PowerPoint. by PowerPoint. Yeah. And when the parents, the influential families, see that the teacher comes with a PowerPoint ready with pictures, with outlines, with points, with videos, they can see, wow, this school's a lot better than any of the others. Wow. And so, you know, we have students coming from the city of Katarman, which is seven hours drive away. Wow. We have students from Kalbayog, which is five hours away. We have students from Burungan, which is four and a half hours away, from Katbalogan, which is two hours away. And these are prominent families. So if they want their kid to go to our school, they either buy a house or they rent a house near our school, staff it. And either and usually the mother comes from Monday through Friday, and then they go home on weekends. Wow. But there was one year where we had the children of uh, five mayors attending our school, and we had the grandchildren of the governor of Leyte attending wow. our school. And uh, what's unique, you've, you've talked about it often, how it's a Christian school, openly Christian, Bible classes, teachers um, are Christian. But the percentage, what's the percentage of students that come from Christian families? Well, in the years that I've looked at all of the registration records, parents list what their religion is and so forth, the average is only one-fourth of our students have at least one parent that's a believer. Mm. Less than that have both parents a believer. Wow. And so last year I led a... Um, life group. That's a Bible study for high school boys. And one of the members of my life group was the son of a Muslim. Mm. And so he'd become a believer. Another member of my boy's life group, his father was Sikh and others were Chinese or had Buddhist background. But uh, parents, when they enroll, we are a mission school, so we'll take people with any religious background, but both the father and the mother have to sign that they agree that their child will learn from the Bible and will attend our Christian formation class, which is what we call our Bible class. Wow. So how many students are there now? We have 340, 340. students. So in this season of your ministry, what is your primary focus? I know you're hoping to double the school. Um, what are Where is your heart at and your focus in these, these coming years? Well, I pastored the church I started up until 11 years ago. And at that time, when I turned it over to a pastor I had been discipling, it had 600 in attendance. And so I have not been pastoring for the last 11 years. I have not been um, leading the campus ministry. And uh, 
I began doing a new translation of the Bible into the Warai language. There had been two previous translations of the Bible into Warai. One was done in 1930 um, from the King James into the Warai language, and it wasn't a bad translation, but the Warai language has changed a lot since 1930. Yeah. In 1930, there was no electricity except for people who had generators, and so there weren't even electric fans, and when you want to turn on the light, that meant go light the lamp. <laughs> so a lot of words have changed since then, and uh, another translation was done in 1980, but it was the good news for modern man, so it was a paraphrased translation, wow. and I wanted to do a more formal translation, and so I've started doing that. The other thing is, right now, there are 3 million Warai, and the census says that 50% are under 23 years of age. Wow. So those people that are 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, they've all been raised watching cable TV. But there's no cable TV programs that are in Warai. They're watching an English program, or they're watching a... Tagalog program or the Philippine national language. The those young people that make up one half of the population have also been raised using gadgets and social media, which also are not in Warai. And so as a result, they still speak Warai, but their vocabulary has different words than the words of their parents mm. and grandparents. And so when we're Doing our translation, our goal is to, I have a team of nine, two are pastors, and seven are college students. And uh, the goal is to translate it using the vocabulary of young people. Mm. Because we want, you know, it, I've done it several times when I will ask a young person to read a passage if it's a person that's never read the Bible before, I'll ask them to read a passage from one of the older translations. And I ask them, well, what do you think? Can you understand it? And their most common response is, well, it sounds like grandpa. Mm. Which when they say that, they're saying, I don't speak like that. Yeah. Grandpa speaks like that. This is a book that's probably for grandpa. But we want them to read our translation. And we hope that they will say, wow. Moses, Jesus, the disciples, they talk just like we do. This is a book to read for me. Mm. Because there aren't other books in the Warai language. If they've read any books, they've only read English, English or Tagalog books. Yeah. And so this will be the first book that they would be reading that would speak the language they speak. Wow. So I know you finished the New Testament, and you're going to print out more and, and update it a little bit, and you're currently working on the Old Testament. But you say the next four or five years, you should get that all finished up, is the hope? Yes. Um, we've translated in a rough draft every book of the Old Testament. Mm. But there's a lot of books in the Old Testament, 39, and the books in the Old Testament, some of them, like Genesis, have 50 chapters. and. Psalms has 150. Uh, and so, you know, there are a lot bigger books than the books of the New Testament. So it will not be done in just a matter of a year or two. It will yeah. probably be at least three, maybe four years, because mm -hmm. we have to go through 
uh, each book as a team. The rough draft has been translated by different individuals, mm. but not yet as a team. And I know a lot of uh, your reason visiting now um, for the couple months you've been here um, has been focused on fundraising for Bethel and uh, a specific building project. Um, a lot of times when we focus on different ministries on the podcast, People are always curious how to be involved, how to engage, how to participate. I'm curious a little bit on the details of what are some of the main goals that you have coming up for Bethel, and why are we building this other building, and, and what's, what's the goal there? Well, Bethel has established itself as the premier school, the top school in the Warai area. However, for the last several years, we've had to turn away quite a few families every year that want to enroll their children simply because our school is full. We only allow 20 students per class in kinder, and we allow 25 students per class in the grades. And so if there are 12 grades and 25 students a class, that's 300. And if there are two kinder classes kinder for four-year-olds and kinder for five-year-olds, and there are 20 in each class, then that's 40 students. So 300 plus 40 is 340. So we're a little full. So if I'm going to retire in three to four years or so, and we want this school to continue for a hundred years, I need to make sure that it is established financially that it can survive if there's a war in China or in Southeast Asia, that it can survive the ups and downs of the economy. As it was, we did survive the COVID time as a full school. We had people coming to our school during COVID wanting to get in because we were the best. So we cannot have two first grades and two second grades, two third grades, two fourth grades, unless we have more buildings so that we have more classrooms. And so right now we're raising a million three hundred thousand for a new three-story building so that we can start that process. And uh, God has already provided 550, maybe even close to 600 wow. in pledges. 550 is already in the bank. 550,000, that is. And uh, so we still lack around 800,000. Uh, but we have the end of 2023, and then we have all of 2024, and because the goal is to have the building finished so that it will be used by the August of 2025. Mm. And a three-story building of this size will take about a year and a few months to finish. So... We're just going to be starting the actual construction in January. So um, we have enough to get it started. We've built buildings on the school before. About a third of the budget will come from parents of students at the school who will donate. But they typically are not believers, and they donate usually once the construction's halfway there. Mm. There more inclined to help finish it than they are to start it. People that are looking to be teachers or curious about spending some time overseas, there's always opportunity. 
um, to go over and, and teach for a season if that's their background or coach a sport. I know that's what I got to do for a year is go out and uh, be the campus pastor and do the chapel services and teach a few classes. So that's always a need. Um, what I would like to ask kind of in closing too, Dad, is just um, obviously it's a cool story hearing all the things from your childhood and your process of feeling called on the mission field to the exciting things that you're doing now and the focus you have in these coming years. But a lot of people listening are just everyday churchgoers in America. You know, I think a lot of people, at least from my understanding, being a missionary kid, it's hard to grasp missions and things like that. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious what encouragement you'd have for the everyday Christian in America about how to challenge themselves to grow in their faith or how they can um, serve God better, whether, you know, not everyone is called to go overseas. I know it would be a good challenge for a lot of people to uh, probably get out of their comfort zone and at least go on a few missions trips. But what would you encourage? Um, I know you've been back and forth and the church in America is different than a lot of what you see overseas, but what would you encourage a everyday listener in, in America and, and how they can grow in their faith or aspects of your journey and relationship with Christ that have really helped you grow? Well, I would like to, to encourage people. Um, having family devotions, I think, was significant in my spiritual development, and I've tried to do that with my family. And I see so many Christian families where the parents are committed to the Lord, but out of the children, one or two or three are not. Mm. And when I look into it, often they'd never had any kind of family devotions. All they had was going to church on Sunday and Sunday school. And so I think having family devotions is very important uh, in the development of children and parents taking interest in developing their children is very important. Teachers can't do it on their own. Mm -hmm. I would also encourage people to do missions, get some missions experience. Now, there are lots of different countries where you can get mission experience, and you can get, you know, a certain degree of knowledge from going to almost any country about missions. But if you go and do missions in a country where English is spoken, but it's a completely different culture, different everything, you will learn so much more about mm. missions. And that's why when I talk to people, okay, you can go to Guatemala, you can go to Nicaragua, but if you don't speak Spanish, you've got a barrier there. You can go to Thailand, but if you don't speak Thai, there's hardly anybody who speaks English there or Japanese if you go to Japan. But if you go to a country where English is spoken, and there are countries where English is spoken, Kenya, any place that was an Eng part of the English empire, um, you know, if you go to South Africa, if you go to Kenya or, or uh, Sudan, um, India, people there are definitely of a different culture. But if you can still communicate to them with English, you can 
have a much greater mission experience. And that's why I tell people, come and teach at our school, at Bethel International School. You will be able to communicate with the students. All of your teaching will be in English. But yet, if you get in, go shopping in town, you go to the malls, you go to the beach, different places, oh yeah, the people there don't speak as good English, but at least you're you're not there's not that language barrier where you cannot talk to anybody you, you know the experience of teaching in a foreign country is often shocking for many teachers i think those that come at teach at bethel where the school i started in the philippines especially if they come from southern california their first day, week of school, they are in shock because every classroom they walk into, the students immediately stand up at attention and say, good morning, ma'am, or good morning, sir. Yeah, and then they I won't, remember that. They won't sit down until you respond by saying, thank you, good morning, class, and then they will, they will be seated. And uh, their comments is always, that would never happen in California <laughs> schools. <laughs> but... It is a great honor, and they treat you with respect, much higher respect than you get in schools here. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't noisy kids oh, or yeah. active <laughs> kids. There still are. But there is a, it is a, a fulfilling experience to, to teach in that environment. I can attest to that, definitely. And if people want to get involved, obviously, um, going to our church website, Abundant.life, um, you can get in contact with us. But if, if people are curious about Bethel and some of the things you do in the Philippines, what would be a good way to communicate or get in touch or get more information? Well, the best is if they communicate with me by email. And my name is Paul. Varberg, and my email is simply paulvarberg at gmail.com. Simple enough. And that is uh, simple. However, you need to know how to spell Varberg. It's spelled with a V-A-R-B-E-R-G. And uh, thankfully, they'll have the uh, the title in the podcast to, okay. to double check the spelling. But any final encouragement that you'd want to leave people, things from the story that you feel or a... Uh, uh, um, something that's been impactful for you that you'd want to share? Well, I would say that uh, many times people have come to me and have thanked me for taking the time to befriend them, to share the gospel with them. And uh, I try and tell people all the time that Put in effort to winning some people to the Lord because they will be forever grateful to you. However, I try and tell people, don't just walk up to somebody in a park or someone sitting and start witnessing to them. Although that's what we were taught to do in Campus Crusade, I don't do that anymore. I believe in friendship evangelism and I take people on outings and we go into the, an island, we go to a cave, we go to the mountains or somewhere because I used to take people, you know, I was trying to win members of the Rotary Club, businessmen to the Lord, and I would visit them in their office and I'd pray for them there. 
But if I ever talk to them at a rotary function, or if I talk to them in their office or at a party that we were invited to for a Rotarian's birthday or something, and if I ask them, how are your kids doing? And how is your business? And how is your family? I would always get the same response. Mm. Oh, they're doing good. They're doing good. Business is good. Family is good. Kids are good. But then I would take that very same person two weeks later. I'd say, I'll take you out to a desert island. Let's have breakfast out there. I'll pick you up at the pier at uh, 7 a.m. and I'll get you back by 8.30 so you can report to work by 9. And uh, they'll say, sure, yeah, let's do that. And uh, I tell them to bring their breakfast. And so two or three of us will go out there and we'll be on this desert island and then just relaxing and laying in the sand and looking at the coral and the mountain and everything. And then I ask them, how are your kids? And more than once, someone who just a few weeks earlier said, oh, they're fine, will say to me, you know, Paul, I've got a son who's on drugs, and I don't know how I'm going to get him off of drugs. Or, you know, they'll say, if I ask about their relationship with their wife, and they'll say, it's, we're just fighting all the time. And, and you get a much more honest response when they're away from their business, away from other people. And in nature, I find people give a much more honest response. And if you know that, it can help you in influencing people to get closer to God. Mm, I love that. So evangelism isn't just walking up to the random stranger, but it's about developing quality relationships. And I think that is something harder and harder to do in our, our culture and society in America. So I love that challenge. Take some people to dinner, get out, be with nature. Great challenge here in San Diego. <laughs> go for a hike, go to the beach. And uh, that's that's true. I've never thought of it that way, that asking the same question in a different environment often gets a very different answer. So thanks, Dad, for uh, joining us and, and sharing so much of your life. Hope it was encouraging to people. Yeah. <laughs>